Hello. Howdy to ya. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing good. It's a little smoky out here. That's how it is in all California. But other than that, I am doing fine. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing just fantastic. Uh, you know, we've been we've been working on a, a few episodes lately, and we have some great interviews coming up. And I know that that we're really excited to to start moving into the to the to the rest of the season. Yeah, aren't we about? Uh, now we're a little more than halfway through now, huh? Yeah, yeah, we're halfway through. We've had some great conversations, and uh, it seems that things are, are going very, very well. Yep. But let's let's move into the content of this episode because we've got a lot to talk about, very pressing issues, and, and some things that I think all of you will find very fascinating and very engaging. Uh, so, so stay with us because uh, this episode, we take a peek behind the curtain of money in politics to gain a deeper understanding of how certain people are infecting the electing... You see what I did there? Infecting the electing? Yeah. Yeah, in America, and what is being done to stop it? This is Pickett. What, Mom? Okay. You all know it by now. You all love it by now. Weather in America. Grab a nice cup of joe, curl up with a blankie by the radio, and marvel and the glory of my meteorological prowess. Okay, fireside chats, keep doing that. Uh, but what is today's town? Yak, Montana. I think it's pronounced Yak. Is, is it Yak? There's two A's in it. It's, it's spelled Y-A-A-K. Okay, well, we'll send out a field reporter to yeah. do some more research on that. But, but while that's pending, <laughs> uh, the weather appears to be pretty consistent. Uh, as we move into the weekend from this Wednesday, it seems that the highs are going to hover uh, around the 80s, uh, and the lows are going to be in the high 40s, low 50s. Look forward to some sun. Maybe you'll see some clouds. Uh, but overall, nice time to, to go outside for, for a jog. Nice to go out and yak Montana. Maybe do fishing. Do a lot of fishing up there. But let's get into the bulk of this episode. A few weeks ago, we had the tremendous honor of speaking with a longtime FEC commissioner. Please join us for this fun, insightful, and relevant interview with a great guest, Commissioner Ellen Weintraub. Well, my name is Ellen Weintraub. I'm a commissioner at the Federal Election Commission. I have been at the commission since the end of 2002. Um, I'm a lawyer. Before that, I was... Um, uh, I've been in and out of public sector and private sector. I started out at a law firm. I worked on the Hill for a few years. I went back to a different law firm, uh, and then I came over to the FEC. My uh, specialty before I got to the FEC was political law, ethics, campaign finance, lobbying regulation, uh, a lot of uh, good government disclosure uh, work. And um, uh, having been in the public sector and the private sector, I have to say there is no better client to have than the American people. And I really am grateful to have the opportunity to work for them in my current position. She's had a pretty significant tenure and she's been a powerful force of the push for increased election transparency, especially with regard to funds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so more for people who... Uh don't quite understand the uh, concept of the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, uh, what would you say in simple terms they do? Uh, I'll try and give a brief description of what the FEC does. They're, they've been around since the mid-70s, and they're comprised of a group of individuals appointed by the president and, of course, confirmed by Congress who are responsible for dealing with uh, campaign finance laws 
and trying to manage how we deal with with federal elections. Uh, One thing that, if I'm understanding this correctly, seems very important is they only have three members right now. And they need four members in order to uh, vote on any issues. And since July of 2020, they've only had three members, which means they can't vote on any issues. It's like a boat without a motor. <laughs> Certainly, there are a lot of really important issues, and, and we're going to get into those, so let's go ahead. Uh, so we'll just uh, we'll jump straight into the policy questions. Uh, so to, to what extent do you believe that the donations of, of wealthy individuals and, and corporations actually influences the, the policy of, of candidates and, and members of government? Oh, I think it definitely has an influence. There's a reason why people give money. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> they're trying to gain an influence. Not, I mean, some not, and I don't want to suggest that um, uh, money is always corrupting because politics costs money. People have to raise money somehow. I think we would be better off with a system of uh, public finance. Um, there are a lot of interesting op- options that are going on in the uh, in states and localities that are uh, trying different ways of funding their elections. Uh, New York City has been a long a leader in public financing with their multiple match program for small donors. Uh, it's really hard to uh, gain much influence with a $25 donation, and but if uh, donations are matched at six to one or eight to one or nine to one, then uh, it really incentivizes politicians to go out and talk to the kind of people who can only afford $25 contributions and not just the kind of people who can afford thousands of dollars or in some cases, when it comes to super PACs, millions of dollars. So what she's talking about there with public financing, we're going to get back to a little bit later in the interview. But the first thing that we talked about with her was Citizens United. The FEC, which is the probably the pinnacle of campaign finance over the past 10 years essentially so we asked her about that first well certainly we can't go uh beyond what the supreme court says is constitutional uh i think that citizens united was wrongly decided it's a very unpopular decision i am not alone in the conclusion that it was wrongly decided i don't believe that corporations and human beings should have the same constitutional rights um Interestingly enough, the the major effect of Citizens United has not been what people expected. A lot of people were concerned at the beginning that um, Citizens United would lead major corporations to flood the marketplace and um, and drown out the voices of individuals by uh, by the vast sums of money that they would be able to spend, but. Corporations, particularly publicly held corporations, have a lot of stakeholders. They have to worry about their um, shareholders, their employees, their customers, their boards of directors. And it's very difficult to please all of those people with uh, a particular political agenda. So they tend to not actually want to be overtly spending money. They they give money to trade associations. They, they are spending money in politics, but not nearly in the way that Uh, I think people were concerned about when Citizens United was first handed down. What has happened, though, is Citizens United created the opportunities for for super PACs to be born. They didn't exist before 2010, but um, they have become a a large force in in money and politics in the United States since then. 
and uh, these super PACs that can accept unlimited donations from uh, individuals, corporations, labor organizations have become, uh, for the most part, a vehicle for very wealthy individuals mm -hmm. to donate millions and millions of dollars to try and get people elected who will um, uh, serve their uh, political ideologies. And uh, this just gives an enormous amount of power. I mean, it's, it's, it's not novel that rich people have more power in this country than people with fewer resources, but it has really supercharged the power of these very wealthy individuals. And there has developed a cadre of um, uh, a few hundred billionaires who donate millions and millions of dollars and really do have a disproportionate uh, effect on who gets elected and what gets enacted. And I don't happen to think that the typical billionaire has the same concerns as the typical citizen. So I think this is not really good for, uh, for the country or for the way um, uh, policies get developed. She said something that I found uh, really fascinating and really surprising because she commented on this, in her mind, misconception that people have, which is that when Citizens United was first handed down from, or the Citizens United versus the FEC was first handed down from the Supreme Court, uh, most people had this belief that it was going to flood corporate money into politics. And she, she, she pointed out an, an interesting reality, which is that it doesn't seem that that has occurred to the extent that people anticipated because uh, corporations, like she mentioned, they have, uh, or privately held, or uh, publicly held corporations that have many stakeholders have these obligations and they don't have that kind of fiscal mobility to be um, explicitly pumping uh, funds into super PACs or into politics. Well, yeah, well, it looks bad for uh, a company because it's kind of, you lose like um probably half your uh consumers because well maybe not lose maybe not lose but it's just really bad publicity it's bad PR yeah so it, yeah so you might not lose the customers because people people are still gonna want your products probably to uh to to a degree but you know you're gonna you're gonna it's really bad PR so that that, that would be in the news. Uh, if it were to get out. So that that could work against a company and it could work against the interests of stakeholders because if you're a large publicly held corporation, you have a lot of interests. You have a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that um, are probably going to prefer that the money of the company in which they own stock is not being used to favor a certain political candidate. And she, she also mentioned that uh, aside from corporation... Wealthy individuals yeah. are responsible for pumping a lot of the money into the political in into into campaigns. And so the question is, uh, between the political and legal uh, landscape right now, is there any way to reform? Here's her take. Sure, there's still stuff that we could do. Um, we the Supreme Court so far has been has maintained a very strong uh, commitment to disclosure. So we could strengthen our disclosure laws. There is still dark money coming into our system, in uh, not insignificant sums, uh, and I think that is a disservice to the American people when they don't know who the source of the money is. And we could strengthen our laws and we could strengthen our regulations on that. Um, there, uh, we also uh, should adopt strong rules and laws on the subject of coordination between the candidates and the super PACs. The current coordination law and regulations were 
uh, date back to pre-Citizens United times. So they just weren't designed to withstand the stresses that super PACs have put on the system. And, and we should adopt stronger rules um, and make sure that they're really the spending to the extent that the Supreme Court seems to believe that independent spending cannot be corrupting, we ought to make sure that it is at least independent, which I think is questionable right now um, and would, would be constitutional to strengthen those laws in light of the fact that the Supreme Court did say that, it, that the spending is supposed to be independent. Um, third, we, I, I think a sleeper issue out there is the issue of coercion. Um, when corporations are uh, em empowered to be more active in politics, then I think you have to worry more about who's going to be doing that activity on behalf of the corporations, because it still requires human beings to actually speak and write and, and take action uh, and implement the, the will of the corporation. And I think that we are, we have seen some instances where I have been very concerned that employees are being dragged into their employers' political causes, uh, which I think is completely inappropriate. Uh, and fourthly, one area where we could certainly strengthen our laws is in um, uh, trying to strengthen the protections against foreign intervention in our elections. Uh, the Supreme Court, again, has been pretty strong on um, endorsing the notion that we don't want foreign spending in our elections. And I think that there are, uh, there are bills in Congress right now that could be adopted. Uh, and uh, there is more action that could be taken. We have, we have seen just in the last week, new information from the State Department and the intelligence community about the possibility, not the possibility, but the reality of um, foreign governments trying to interfere in our elections. And I think that we as a nation really need to speak with one voice and speak strongly against that and to adopt stronger rules, uh, laws, and enforcement policies to ensure that we are doing everything we can to ward off malign foreign actors. So as we, so as we already mentioned, it's pretty difficult within the confines of Citizens United v. the FEC to really create the kind of extensive uh, campaign finance reform that many on the left desire. Uh, so in recent years, we've seen many programs in states and municipalities for uh, largely publicly funded elections overturned. Uh, in the state of California, we saw that happen, and in many other locations across the country. But in several states and municipalities, uh, we see programs wherein there are match donations and a variety of other compromises that are kind of a stepping stone along the way to more full-blown public financing for elections. Um, yeah, well, New York City, actually, it's not a state, it's a, it's a city um, provision, has a very robust public funding system where small dollar donations are matched. It's, it was six to one, but I think they've increased the match actually to eight or nine to one. Um, and as I said, that that incentivizes candidates to do small dollar fundraisers because it is now worth it. If every $25 that you collect actually ends up netting you $125 or $200, then um, it becomes uh, easier to do 
you know, you get a group of people who can each give $25 in a small setting where you really can have a conversation with them, you can end up raising a lot of money and, uh, and running a campaign without spending all of your time at high dollar fundraisers. And again, it's a, it's a question of who, who gets re represented, whose voices get heard, who are politicians talking to and interacting with? Because I think that even with the best of intentions, if uh, a politician is spending hours and hours every day on the phone doing fundraising, which is what happens at the federal level, and the people that they are calling are all very, very wealthy people because they need people who they're, they're looking for um, uh, $2,800 contributions. That's the max from an individual right now. Um, and not everybody can afford that. So they are automatically spending hours. The system forces them, in a sense, to spend hours and hours of every day talking to their, their, the, the wealthiest people in the country and hearing about their concerns. And even if they have the best of intentions, if they are hearing for hours and hours a day about the concerns of a, a very small segment of society, and they are not spending that time hearing about the concerns of the, the bulk of their constituents, then it's going to affect how they think about issues. It's, it's just there's no way around it. Uh, and I think what we want is a system that is designed to uh, promote policies that are going to serve the most people with the best policies. Um, another locality that has a really interesting and innovative uh, approach to this is Seattle. They have a, a system called democracy vouchers where each um, municipal citizen gets uh, uh, $25, four $25 vouchers that they can provide to the candidates of their choice for municipal races. And again, if you're, if you're running for office, then you have an incentive to talk to two types of people, people who you think uh, will vote for you, or you could persuade them to vote for you, and people who you think will give you money. And there are some people who do not fit into either of those categories, and those people tend to get ignored. So if every single citizen has these four $25 vouchers, then there is a new incentive for uh, candidates to talk to as many citizens as possible, to go into neighborhoods where perhaps they didn't go before because there was low voter turnout and not enough money for people to uh, be making campaign contributions. Now they have that incentive to talk to everyone. And again, I think that just leads to a more representative government at the end. It leads to um, office holders who have spent more time talking to more constituents, hearing their concerns, and um, and will be better positioned to represent all of their citizens. Okay, so this one's a hot topic. This one's in the news a lot right now, and it's really important, and it's really relevant because of the upcoming election, the upcoming 2020 elections um, here in the United States because of COVID-19. There's this tremendous, and rightly so, fear of going to voting stations and voting in person, uh, because, you know, one could catch COVID-19 in those confined spaces, uh, touching the same devices. It, it's a frightful prospect. In my state of Texas, uh, you need an absentee excuse. You need uh, an approved excuse, one of several, to be able to get that mail-in ballot. Uh, but in your state of California, they'll just send you the ballot through the mail automatically. Yeah. 
And the same and goes I for think a that's, lot of other states. That's definitely down to the left-right divide. That's mm-hmm. in states that, like Washington ultimately. and Oregon, you know, they they they'll send you the ballot, and then in many others they'll send you the application. Uh, but here in Texas and in a few other southern states, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, you know, you need one of the approved excuses, and that's that's really constricting. Uh, an individual. Uh, who we had on the show not too long ago, a professor at Harvard, Lawrence Lessig. Uh, his organization, um, Equal Citizens, is currently suing the state of Alaska over their mail-in voting policy. The current phenomenon we're seeing is a really distinct right-left divide, where we have these Trumpian Republicans that are really questioning the security of mail-in voting. So we asked Commissioner Weintraub if there was any legitimacy to these claims. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of studies on, on voter fraud, and every single one has come to pretty much the same conclusion, which is that it is just incredibly rare. Um, it's exceedingly rare for individual voters to commit fraud because it's subject to criminal penalties. And um, the, the notion that one person is going to go out and try and vote twice, for example, or take their, their neighbor's ballot and try and send it in in their place, they're risking going to jail for that. And it's really not worth it <laughs> to, to most citizens to do that. And, and there have been studies, there's been litigation. The Justice Department has looked into this back in the um, George W. Bush administration. The, uh, the president tried to put together a commission early in his administration to come up with evidence of voter fraud and it disbanded without having come up with any evidence of voter fraud. There was a, a case in Kansas called Fish v. Kobach where the issue of voter fraud was litigated and uh, the folks who are proponents of this theory came in with all of their favorite experts and they said, well, you know, we found a few instances here and a few instances there and we think it's just the tip of the iceberg. And what the judge said was, that's not an, the tip of the iceberg. What you've got is an icicle there. There is, you know, you have not come up with any evidence that that this is really going on in appreciable uh, numbers. The Heritage Foundation has um, compiled a database which has, you know, a, uh, a small number of examples that stretch out over decades. If you look in the vote by mail category in particular, uh, they've, they've come up with, I think, 143 instances of prosecutions for absentee voting fraud uh, over the course of two decades where, you know, billions of people voted. And it's just an infinitesimal uh, amount of, of uh, even allegations of fraud. Uh, but what we have today is a, a crisis. You know, we have, a, we have a public health crisis. People do not feel safe going and standing in lines in a polling place. The polling stations are being reduced because they can't find enough poll workers. And I would appeal, by the way, since you have a, uh, I'm guessing, a young audience, that if you are young and healthy and would like to do something for your democracy, you should consider becoming a poll worker because um, it's it get you get paid for being a poll worker. And uh, right now, historically, 
it is older citizens, senior citizens who form the bulk of the poll workers. And in the primaries, we saw that that polling stations had to be shut down because the states and localities couldn't find enough people to staff them. So they had to consolidate and that resulted in longer lines and um, uh, people being forced to stand uh, together in some places because they were trying to spread the lines out. The lines went on for blocks and blocks and people were standing in line for hours. And that's just not acceptable. We have to, we're having an election on November 3rd and we have to have a safe and accessible way for the voters to vote. And that means that voters are demanding. This is coming from the voters themselves. Voters want to be able to vote safely and they want to be able to vote from home. Now, this means that they could put the mail, uh, put their ballots in the mail, but there are also in many locations drop boxes, secure drop boxes that are maintained by the Board of Elections. Uh, and uh, usually you can go and drop your ba ballot off physically at the Board of Elections itself. So uh, there are a variety of ways. Vote by mail doesn't necessarily actually mean that you have to mail in your ballot. It, it, it does generally mean that you are mailed the ballot to your home and then how you deliver it is, uh, there are usually some options on that. But there is no evidence of significant fraud that is associated with vote by mail. There is nothing that inherently advantages one party or the other in vote by mail. Millions of people are choosing to vote by mail this year and we, we have to make sure that they can safely do that. Do you think we should anticipate significantly diminished voter turnout for people that aren't able to get out access to a mail-in ballot, uh, but who don't feel comfortable going to a voting station because of coronavirus? Uh, I, I don't want to predict. Uh, I've, I've seen predictions of low voter turnout. I've also seen predictions of very high voter turnout. Um, what we uh, have seen in some of the primaries is that when, when people feel like somebody is trying to restrict their right to vote, sometimes that just makes them feel like they are even more determined to get out there and one way or another make sure that their vote is registered. So attempts to uh, make it harder for people to vote may end up increasing voter turnout. And of course, lastly, like always, we wanted to ask a question, which we think is a very important to hear from uh, Commissioner Weinshaw's perspective is, what does she hope that we learn from the turmoil of the past few months and almost the whole year now, basically? I worry a lot about the increasing polarization of our nation. And um, I would hope that one thing that we could learn from all this is that we really have to all pull together to take care of each other, to be kind to each other, to be caring of each other, and to um, adopt the kinds of laws and policies that will make it easier for everyone to succeed and, um, and, and for us to find common ground and, and ways to work together and not be constantly at each other's throats and trying to fight each other. So um, if, if people can find a way to be kinder to each other as a result of all this, I think that would be um, uh, a nice silver lining to what has been a very difficult year. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You too. Have a nice day. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks, of course, to Commissioner Weintraub for coming on the show. And as always, thank you, our listeners, 
so much for your continued support and for listening to Picket. If you'd like to stay up to date at the latest developments here at Picket, uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Picket Podcast. No space. You know the drill. Also, if you enjoy the show, make sure to rate the podcast in whatever format you listen. And if you like our intro outro music, make sure to check out I Means Love on Spotify or wherever you stream music. And if you'd like to contact us with any questions or comments, you can visit our website at picketpodcast.com. And we'll see you next time on the Picket Fence with us.